Lakers Locker Room. I'm your co-host, Tejan Graham. And in this episode, we have a very special guest. You know, I've had the privilege of meeting him a couple of times, and you guys are all going to meet him, too. He's the new president of Nipissing University. Please welcome to Lakers Locker Room. Well, he officially goes by Dr. Kevin Wamsley, but we're kind of cool now, so I'm going to have to call you Kevin. So, Kevin, how are you doing today? Thank you so much for coming on today. Hey, Sean, I'm great, and I really want to thank you for having me on the show. No, no problem. I'm, as soon as you said yes, I knew I had to get you on right away. So it's been great getting to work with you so far. I'm looking forward to having you on. So thank you so much again. Pleasure. So let's get right into it. So you just started your term at Nipissing not too long ago. So how has your adjustment been to the North Bay community and working at Nipissing so far in your first month? Well, uh, I started working officially on August the 1st, remote, August the 1st remotely. And then uh, I arrived in town uh, two weeks ago today in the evening. And so I've been in my office now for just weeks. And so far, uh, you know, I've met with students and uh, administrators, board members, alumni, and some faculty members, and everybody's been very welcoming so far. So I've had a great experience today. That's awesome. Um, how, how has the relationship been so far? Have you built any like really close relationship with the administrative staff? Or I know you've kind of had the opportunity to meet with some athletes. So how is the relationship building with you so far? Well, you're only as good as your staff, right? And so, so far, so good. I, I got a chance to meet some people during the interview process. And of course, that was a factor in, in me coming to Nipissing was knowing that I had uh, great vice presidents and deans and students and, and a great board, great board chair. Uh, so I've had a, a very good relationship um, with the board chair. And I've met with the board executive and, of course, had a chance to meet with students uh, a couple of teams, which was great, and uh, an opportunity to participate in the move-in on Saturday and Sunday. So had a great experience with NUSU and, uh, and all the residents' dons and softs. Uh, and, and I would say uh, the, the team in the president's office is outstanding. Really all about service and uh, making sure that people get in to see me and to talk to me, and um, they're really, really good. Awesome. I know last time you, your previous um, place was at uh, St. Francis Xavier, St. Francis Xavier University, which is also back in Antigua, Nova Scotia. Oh, quick, quick side note, by the way, um, there's a mentor. I have a mentor named Coach Leano. Say so he coaches the women's basketball team. So when I told her that you're coming, she's like, "Oh, Kevin's my boy. Like you got to say hi. Like he's super, super cool." So I heard a lot of good things about you before I came here through um, Coach Lee, um, who coaches the women's basketball team. So that's a huge plus. But um, how how has it been um, adjusting to North Bay community so far? Like, I know you've only been here for a short period of time, but have you had the opportunity to kind of scope the community, see what's good to eat, like the places to go to? Like, how has it been your adjustment to the North Bay community so far? So far, so good. Um, I've been in the office a lot because I like to be in the office. Uh, I'm living on campus now until we find a house, and that's been good. So I've had my fat bike out, and I've been uh, riding around campus, um, usually on Sundays taking a look at all of uh, what surrounds the campus and I see trees and rocks and uh, I love the escarpment. Um, I love the outdoors. It's a beautiful campus. It really is. Um, so I, I really like those features about the campus and our head of facilities, uh, Dave Drant gave me a comprehensive tour of the grounds uh, last Tuesday. So it was great to learn about the history of the buildings, what they're used for, what changes have come about. And I'm quite impressed by the campus. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful campus with great facilities. And from what I've seen so far, some great people and certainly a great student body that are now starting to trickle back in, which is so good to see after this long pandemic. I know. And speaking of the pandemic, 
obviously this past year has been obviously been a huge mess of the year with a lot of different things, you know, society and just mental health and stuff like that. For you personally, how were you able to do with the pandemic, especially last year with school going online and just everything being switched up? So how was it for you with um, your routine kind of being kind of altered due to the pandemic and obviously going online? It was rough. You know, uh, I lived in Nova Scotia during the first part of the pandemic and uh, was part of the team that opened that university. Uh, and we were fortunate based on our environment um, and very low numbers of cases that we were open to a, a predominantly in-person experience with masks and social distancing on campus. But I'll tell you what, those first few months trying to plan that opening, we spent nine weeks planning. And uh, as the president at that university, the interim president, I uh, was leading a, an outstanding team and we were on Microsoft Teams, sometimes 14 hours a day for those first nine, 10 weeks. And uh, so, you know, it was a real challenge uh, because I really like being in a room with people. We all have a great sense of humor. It's great to interact and it really forced us into our basements. And so we were at that for such a long time and then got onto campus and actually were able to meet with people and students and then thrown back into a position where we're back online. I, I found that really tough to jump back in the second time just because we've had so much time in, in um, virtual meetings. It's, it, I find it very taxing and very, I'll be honest, it's very difficult to concentrate after uh, more than a year of doing Teams meetings. So it's been a real challenge. Yeah, it's been a real challenge, especially coming from a student perspective, like being online was obviously a huge adjustment. Like the first semester took me and a lot of people a while to really get adjusted because, you know, when you're in person, it's very easy to kind of keep up with things. You get to talk, have those interactions, talk to teachers, stuff like that. Now, a lot of us who did online school last year didn't even see what our teachers looked like. So even just it went from saying, hi, how are you? Nice to meet you to typing an email saying, hi, my name is this, this is I have a question kind of online. And it was a huge adjustment for a lot of people, including myself, who it really messed up the routines because obviously last year for as athletes, there was no season. So we obviously had the opportunity to kind of really focus on school, but it really wasn't the same just because like I said, our whole routine got thrown off with stuff that we're usually accustomed to with like I said, the personal interactions, going to the library, going to certain spaces that we're used to studying. We didn't have that last year. So I can see from your perspective, from the administrative standpoint, that it's probably the same thing where a lot of people who are comfortable either working in their office or having those face-to-face -face interactions or even just having lunch and just saying how are things going with your family. Like a lot of that was shut off last year, so I can definitely see where the administration really struggled to really adjust. But I'm glad that we were able to get through it last year, and I'm looking forward to hopefully being back this year with all the schools across the country in person. Hopefully, COVID holds up to the point where we can get through the whole year um, smoothly. But obviously, once you know this, the time at SantaFex came, you came to Nipissing. But how was your time at SantaFex? If you were described throughout the whole time you were there, and how long were you there, by the way? I was there for six years, so I was uh, five years in the role of of academic vice president and provost, and then one year as interim president. I had a, a great experience at St. FX. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, in Ontario. I was born and raised in Ontario and went to did two degrees in Ontario and then went out west to do a third degree and came back several, well, it was 10 years later, came back and worked in Ontario for 18 years. So a bit of an adjustment going from uh, a large city like London, a large university like Western, going out to St. FX with 5,000 students. And interestingly, uh, St. FX is a lot like Nipissing. Um, small school, small class sizes, the most important thing uh, in the quality of the education between our institutions is the relationship between the students and the faculty members. And, and so you hit the nail on the head for students. You probably came to Nipissing because uh, of 
in part because of its great athletic program, but in part uh, because of the size of the university and the attention that you're going to get one-on-one -on -one with your professors and a very socially intense environment with your classmates because there's a limited number of them. Right. And so the students online is, is like a double slap because we're all really here because of this personal experience that we have at small universities. That's really what makes it for us. That's why we choose to work and enroll in these universities because of the close personal relationships with students and faculty members and, and the opportunities and the leg up that it gives you for the next stage in your life. So the pandemic has really thrown a wrench in, in those gears. And I hope we're able to go forward cautiously as we are to, and to proceed with the term. I really do. And I've said so many times last season on the podcast that the pandemic gave people opportunity to really self-reflect and see what they got to do to get better. So if you didn't come out of the pandemic as a better version of yourself, then you basically wasted your time. Because up to this point, we've had about a good 14 months, 15 months uh, to really sit down and see what they got to do to get better, whether it's as a student, as an administration, as universities, things like that. So hopefully everyone took the opportunity to really benefit from the pandemic and turn a negative into a positive and see where different aspects they need to get better. Because we've talked about amongst ourselves, which we're going to get into a little bit later, but there's so many things that need to change, you know, with schools and society and all that type of stuff. So I really hope that people took this opportunity to really learn something. But you touched on it just now, but it's, it's kind of going on just to say you're in academia, but just looking at your resume and all the stuff that you accomplished over your time, you're very accomplished and you're very into, you know, leadership and academics and stuff like that. So where did the passion for academics come from for you? Well, I didn't anticipate attending university early on. I grew up on a farm uh, in a working class community of a thousand people. Um, I had four older sisters, a couple of them went to university and I was sort of following them. Um, I did have some support at home for that, um, that idea. And I just kind of headed out not knowing what I was going to do. And so, you know, I almost failed out of first year. I was a town kid in a large university. I was cowering in my residence room. I was scared to death. And it gives me a sense of what it's like in that transition for, for sometimes the small town kids or the introverts and, and coming to university is a real change. And uh, as I went through university, uh, I thought I was gonna become a secondary school teacher. Uh, I came into contact with a professor and took his history course. And uh, that really changed everything for me. I, I loved that course so much. I, uh, I sought him out after class and asked if I could do an independent research study with him in third year. And he said, yes. And so I had a one-on-one -on -one relationship with him. I completed a, a study over the course of a year and I decided to go to grad school and I was loving it. I couldn't get enough. And so I did a master's degree with him as well. And, uh, and my love for research really took over. And at the same time, the program gave me the opportunity to teach as a graduate student. So I was able to teach physical activity classes. And in my PhD, I was able to teach lecture courses when my uh, professor had a leave of absence. And so that put me over the top. And I knew I was going to be a professor at that time. And I couldn't wait for my first job. And, and I'll tell you what, I from 1991 to 2005, I love being in the classroom every day. And I love doing research and attending conferences and asking important research questions. And I knew that I'd really found something that I enjoyed. And, and really, I got arm twisted into administration. I, I call myself an accidental leader because I never planned any of this. Um, I was an executive member of the faculty union. I was really involved with all kinds of faculty-based and student-based activities and got into administration. And I one day it suddenly dawned on me that um, 
the kind of person I was, I like to get in on the inside of the machine and fiddle with the gears. And a few years later, folks aren't even going to notice it, but things are going to change. And that's kind of how I, I do business. I like to get on in on the inside and figure things out yeah. and with people uh, for positive change. And so that really got me excited about being an administrator. And I, and I do regret giving up the teaching. I loved having graduate students, um, but I really have a passion for helping people solve problems and giving them the opportunity to succeed, whether they're a faculty member or a or staff member or students. And that's, that's my real passion now as the leader of a university is, is to work with people and uh, to go somewhere that we all decide is the right direction for us. What would you say was your favorite part of teaching? Because talking to a lot of people, a lot of people going to teach for different reasons, have different aspects of it that they love. But for you personally, what was your favorite part about teaching? I think you could see, um, you know, working through problems with students in the classroom and uh, always taking a critical approach, critical approach to the literature, always challenging things. And I appreciated when the students challenge things. You see the light go on. And I always saw this particularly in grad students when they figure out their, their calling. It is so exciting to see a student excited about the work. And you know that that is going to change the direction of their lives. And you see that we're all in this together. So like you and I on this podcast, we're working towards an end that is trying to make this environment better for all of us and to understand each other and to go somewhere. And that is really what excited me about teaching. Yeah, and, and touching on that too, like I was watching another podcast the other day and um, someone was talking about uh, something learned from Oprah. And he said that Oprah says, anytime you ask someone, make sure you, this is the first question you ask them, what is your intention? And I thought about it and I was like, what is your intention? So anytime you're having an interview with someone, anytime like you're talking to someone, you always ask them first, like, what is your intention? And I think about it, I'm like, that's pretty true because at the end of the day, like you, we can do all these things and we can have like a goal and stuff, but what's your end goal? Like, mm-hmm. so like a lot of times the reason why I feel like things kind of fall through or people have all these great ideas and they kind of fall through is because they don't plan right. They don't have an end goal. Like they think they know what they're doing, but then when you actually ask them a question, what's their intention? You're like, oh, like, it takes them a time to really think about it. So it's kind of the same thing in your position because obviously coming as a president, you obviously have intentions for some things that you want to hopefully accomplish with the university. So with that being said, I just would love to hear the opportunity to hear from you. Like what are some intentions that you have with the university moving forward in terms of the community, sports, administrating staff, we talked about amongst yourself, but uh, what's your intention with this position at the university? Well, that's a heck of a question, and uh, <laughs> it sort of it sort of begs the response that that uh, it's important for all of us at the end of the day just to sit there and think about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And so, you know, good good on you because now you've taken that on as one of your as a mantra, and and so you put your guests on the spot, and uh, it's so important for us to reflect on what on what we do, and and it's difficult sometimes, but. Um, you know, as the president coming in, I, I understand, um, I see Nipissing high on the hill here uh, with such great facilities and a relationship between faculty members of students, great research going on, great teaching. And I see the student experience at the center of it. And uh, I look around and I say, why don't more people know about Nipissing University and what it has to offer? Why, with some of these silly rankings, uh, I don't try not to pay attention too much to rankings unless are student generated, for example, and they're very careful. Um, but I think that Nipissing should be viewed as one of the best 
primarily undergraduate institutions in the country. And if it's not, it needs to be. There's a story to be told here about all the great work that's going on. Um, but at the same time, there's all kinds of ways that Nipissing can improve. Um, it needs to be the University of the North and it needs to serve its region and with all of its uh, multifaceted constituents, whether they're uh, First Nations people, whether they are um, people who live in rural or isolated areas or live and work in North Bay and the surrounding region. It's our responsibility to solve the problems of the region and to get our research ideas and problem solving abilities out into the community and to make people's lives better and to answer the questions that our communities have for us. Like, we should be a beacon of hope for our entire region and, and we should be working with our city governments, uh, with the Nipissing First Nations and, and other First Nations. We should be working with all of our communities uh, to make this a better world because the world is in dire need of this kind of systematic help. Uh, where we have educated people who ask difficult questions and they are trained to do their jobs and they are producing the leaders of the next generation. And so a high quality education is very important. It needs to be a university that is accountable to its community and its constituents. Uh, and it needs to be sustainable. The education system in Canada currently is not sustainable. And so as leaders, we have to do our part to make sure that 25 years from now, our great institutions are standing and they won't look like they are today because they're going to serve the people. And we're not just going to keep the old traditions going for the sake of doing them. We're gonna question everything and we're gonna go forward with the best educational model possible that's going to be sustainable from an environmental standpoint, from an intellectual standpoint, and of course, the financial standpoint. So I would say priorities, uh, to promote this university as one of Canada's top uh, quality undergraduate institutions with uh, select grad programs, uh, great community relationships, great alumni relationships, and a damn fine experience for every one of our students. And that means every one of them. Nobody should be left out of the of this party that we're trying to have. And you touched on it just now. Like I think the most important thing that's going to take is the leadership, like someone leading the church and make sure that this happens. And this is something that we really talk a lot about on the podcast is leadership, and especially getting to know you as someone who's really like, you know, is a fan of sports. You know, leadership is a big thing in terms of building that camaraderie and bringing people together to really accomplish one goal. And someone in your position, leadership is a huge asset of what you do. So the question I have for you is based on all the things, all the things that you've learned from your time, you know, in the space, what does it take to be an effective leader? Well, there are different kinds of leaders. Uh, some people take the bull by the horns. Some people uh, struggle their way into it. Um, some people take very good care to become educated in leadership. It's, a, it's something that's not very well understood. Um, leadership to me is finding a way to get out of the way and let the good people around you do the work. So that could be a student, could be a staff member, could be faculty, could be an administrator. We have very talented people here and, and we should have talented people here. And it's not my job to come in and tell people what to do. It's my job to spend the next little while listening to people. What are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? And what are the aspirations of this institution? And when we can determine what those aspirations are, we craft that into a strategic plan, which guides us and makes us accountable to achieving those aspirations. And we work together as a group and achieve those aspirations. 
And it's the listening part and it's the enabling part and breaking down barriers, creating opportunities for people um, so that, you know, whenever I'm finished with this job, I've, I've left the university in a much better position. So that that's what I would say would be, if I've done a, a good job, then those are the symptoms that you will see. Like what you've been hearing so far? Make sure to follow us on IG at Lakers Locker Room and subscribe to our YouTube channel while you're at it, where you can find clips of all our episodes and video content associated with the podcast. Part two of the Lakers Locker Room starts now. Staying on this topic, the very first time that I saw you was uh, at the time of this recording was about a week ago when you came into our gym and you had a Black Lives Matter mask on and you had the opportunity to really speak in front of our, our team about it. And I was like, wow, like this is this is really, really good. Yep, you got it right now, exactly. Just like my phone case. I don't know if you can see it, but same with my phone case. Getting to know you, and we've had this conversation off air, but you've said, which I really appreciate, the fact that you think that all universities are systemically racist. Elaborate on that. Well, being a historian and understanding um, many significant events and how societies are organized, how power works over time, um, the universities were a product of their times, and people made conscious decisions about maintaining power hierarchies, about maintaining uh, ways of doing. And um, I think that this perpetuates itself over time. And uh, the way our society operated, it was a, a colonial society. Obviously, uh, white men were in power and had a particular way of doing things. And they always tried to fit people in their, into their ways of doing things and perpetuated uh, these systems of power. And so that they, they always kept it. And we're not serving the interests of, of people. And we're not permitting others to assume positions of power or even changing the way that they did things. Our institutions are systemically racist in, in that these relations have been perpetuated for more than a century. And um, it can be very direct forms of discrimination. And it can also be the thousands and thousands of subtleties that people face on a daily basis, whether it's the way that they are looked at, the way that they are greeted, um, the way they see themselves in campus culture or not. Um, people trying to live their lives who are treated differently, and it's all around us. And, and it's in these not so subtle and very subtle ways that we are systemically racist and people do not have the same opportunities. They are not treated the same. Uh, they are discriminated against and um, it's starting to change, but it's so, so slow. Our, our institutions move like snails when it comes to social change. But you know what, I'm, I'm hopeful the, the events of the last few years, uh, the horror of what's been going on in the streets and what's gone on for centuries has really come to the forefront and people aren't gonna take it anymore. And um, we can't be in a position where we tear each other apart. And so it becomes the responsibility of those who have never faced this kind of discrimination. It's up to those people to step forward and to speak out and to act. It's not up to people who have, um, had, have experienced racism to carry the burden. They've always carried the burden. They've always protested. They've always stood up for what is right and nobody was standing up with them and nobody was standing up for them. And that's just not right. And things won't change. And so 
I think it's um, it's our it's absolutely necessary that we eradicate racism in our institutions. And um, I think Stephen Biko had it right, and I'm just going to paraphrase him when he talked about um, setting the table and having guests at the table. And so even if you invite everyone at the table, it doesn't work. You need to reset the table or you need to eat in a different way, in a different, you need to tear the tablecloth off, take everything apart and eat in a different way. Because we can't just continue uh, to put more numbers of people in and think that that's gonna change everything. We have to change the way that we do things, um, whether it's administratively or in the classroom or on the court or wherever it is. Um, we need to change our, our, our laws, our politics, our social systems. Uh, the revolution has started and it has to be carefully thought out and carried out um, because we absolutely cannot have more people die. It's just been going on far too long. Yeah, and uh, I've used this, and I use this stat multiple times to talk about this. Um, I, I saw it a, a few months ago where it says, um, people for black students, who, black kids who are age 15, 25, 80% of them want to go to university. But here's the thing, though, 60% of them think they actually can. Mm -hmm. so I'll say it again, between kids 15 to 25, 80% of them want to go to university, 60% of them think they actually can. And like you said, because there's so many things that need to change when we talk about marginalized communities, because when they talk about the economic statics, you know, with financial stuff like that, like people don't understand this stuff. And then when people say it, it's like, oh my gosh, I got to hear this again. Like this is like the ignorant people, right? But like people say, I got to hear this again or this. And they try to, they always try to like make it seem like something that's not, or they kind of try to say that, oh, you guys are complaining and whatnot. But when you look at the stats, it's the truth. Like I'll give you another stat. Uh, I, I saw this back in Kitchener where they interviewed about 300 entrepreneurs, black entrepreneurs. 75% of them says it's been harder for them to do run their business just because of their skin color. So we're not making this up. Like these are problems that keep going on. It just took you guys until 2020 for you guys to see, oh, these are the stuff that's going on. But this stuff's always been going on. And it's mm -hmm. not only with the black community, we're seeing now in Canada with residential schools. For those who weren't who were educated by this, like I was, I knew this was a problem when you go back to like the 1850s, and then the last school only closed in 1996, which is 25 years ago. So people want to seem like that this is something that's was like foreign history that's happened a long time ago. When we talk about residential schools specifically. This only ended 25 years ago. And then with the black community, it's still going on right now. So people want to talk about slavery and all these other things are going on. But as we speak right now, things are still going on. Like you said, there's still stuff going on with university. There's stuff going on with job hiring processes. Like all these little parts of uh, society is going on right now. This is still a problem. So I'm really glad that you, you have your vision in terms of seeing that this is a problem that we need to fix it. And for someone who, who's in your skin color, when obviously George Floyd happened last year, a lot of people were kind of uncomfortable talking about it, not because they didn't care, but they didn't want to offend people. For someone like you said, who's been knowledgeable about this stuff, were you eager to have the conversation about race or you were kind of the boat where I don't want to say anything to offend people? Like what was your position when obviously the, all the, the big conversation came up last year about race? Well, when I started out, um... I started out as a bit of a, an essentialist, positive, a scholar. And, and when I got to my PhD studies, I really did spend some time on critical theory and had some very good um, influence from some very good professors. And uh, when I started teaching at the University of Calgary, uh, in my history classes, my history of sport classes, we spent significant time um, talking about 
uh, race relations uh, in sport way back when, what was going on in baseball and the Negro Leagues and the emergence of Jack Johnson and Sam Langford and all of the great boxers of the early 20th century uh, and the black boxers who never had the opportunity to fight for the World Heavyweight Championship and the great stir that was created when Jack Johnson beat the Canadian Tommy Burns in 1908 uh, became the first black heavyweight champion. And it, and it resulted in set off a series of lynchings and race riots throughout the United States. Um, and it's bringing that to the students and uh, starting to do some research and, and write about that and continuing that through my career has been informative for me, theoretically and substantively to understand uh, race relations through sport, uh, where many of these forms of discrim discrimination are perpetuated and still are today to a great degree. And we're seeing some people asking the right questions about the NCAA, for example, and all the money that uh, people are being exploited for, the athletes are being exploited for, and how um, black athletes have been exploited uh, for the, forever. And, and asking some, you know, some very difficult questions of this, and, and it's, it's very complex. But I think the more important part is, is taking that beyond academics into your own life. And what, you know, you just go, you just go home to your nice house and you just sit there and you have nice food and, and you, you stop thinking about this. And, and the events of, of last year and the year before, they call into question all of that. And, and people's right to uh, opportunity, housing, food, healthcare, education, uh, being treated as human beings and having access to decision-making to define their own lives and identities, uh, being part of the political process. I mean, the backlash to all of this goes on and on with the United States right now restricting voting. Uh, these kinds of, um, it's, it's a direct backlash to Black Lives Matter and other movements. And this always happens in time. Um, but I don't think that this is going to go away, and I'm glad that it's not. People are going to continue to fight for what is right. And uh, what is heartening is that others are taking it up. It's not just those who are oppressed and discriminated against. Others are taking it up, and they're not going to stand for it. And um, things are going to have to change in a rapid way, um, or we're going to have an all-out war. And that's not what anybody wants. And so I think it, you know, as academic leaders, as institutions, we have to take this on. Uh, we need to be the intellectual leaders. And in so doing, we have to have a situation on our campuses um, without racism. Or, or what are we? We're not, I mean, we talk about, we get up on a stump, we make these speeches, we march in support, but what are we really doing about it? Are we stopping meetings? Are we stopping a situation in the classroom? or on the field and saying, this just isn't on. You can't say that, you can't do that, and you have to call it out and we have to make change. And so um, this is a great responsibility that, that all of our campuses have, and we can try to do our best within our spheres of influence. And I think it's, it's everyone's responsibility to do that. You see now that a lot of athletes are really starting to get involved with this, um, including myself and across Ontario, I've had the fortune to start Athletes for Change because a lot of athletes have really were affected by what happened George Floyd last year. So they really took the opportunity to take the time to actually create groups and create a platform to really dig on this stuff. 
I know a lot of people, for example, in the States, when we look at professional athletes, whether it's like LeBron James or the NBA and stuff like that, who are really passionate about social justice, really trying to use that platform to advocate for marginalized communities, they kind of say, why is this being ingratiated into sports? Why is it politics, et cetera, like that? What is your take on athletes from the university level and professional level really using their platforms to really advocate for marginalized communities and really bring to the forefront these societal issues? And athletes have been trying to do this for a long time. I mean, um, wanting to participate was was a big deal. Um, representing community was a big deal. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of the 1968 Olympics with Tommy Smith and John yep. Carr, who made very clear statements, and others did. Yeah. And, uh, and the Black Panthers, and it was a cry for freedom movement, uh, which was characterized as a black power movement, meaning a bunch of upstarts when really it was a group of people who were fighting for civil rights throughout the 1960s. And really there were, there have been some very pivotal moments. Um, throughout Muhammad Ali's career, he, he backed down to no one and, and stood up for civil rights, you know, unlike any athlete before him and used his, his position uh, to advocate uh, for freedom, for civil rights, equality, uh, everything that everyone deserves and paid the price for it. Um, and you look at Colin Kaepernick, who, uh, who took a knee during the national anthem um, to really make a statement about the way that black people were being treated in America. And it cost him his career. Yeah. One of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, uh, making millions of dollars. He gave all of that up for what he believed in. And he really inspired a movement among the other sports uh, where athletes refused to participate uh, unless they could make their statements and, and were joined by other athletes like Steve Nash, who stood um, with his colleagues. Um, and so it's really created a revolution through, through sport. And, uh, but at the same time, you're fighting against the old colonial powers. And let's take the example of the International Olympic Committee, who as recently as this year in Japan, were adamant about um, athletes not protesting on the medal podium and, and wanted to put people in cages essentially for their protests, which they've always done. They've right. created fenced in places for people to protest. And so we still have these old bastions of a colonial world who are fighting against political freedoms and the rights of people to make statements about issues that are so important to them. And, and really what they're talking about is the life and death of families, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, children, grandparents. Uh, we're talking about life and death issues. Yeah. And another thing I saw on another podcast was someone said that there's always been politics in sports. The problem for some people is they don't like the politics that they don't agree with in sports. See, that's the difference. See, there's always been politics in sports. I'll say it again. There's always been politics in sports. But the thing is, people don't like the politics that they don't agree with in sports. So when people, and it's, and it's the certain politics that we're seeing now, like I said, with the Black Lives Matter movement and obviously in Canada with the residential schools and stuff like that, people are forced to now look in the mirror because before like, people just want to, because I feel like deep down, we people know like sometimes what they think is wrong or how they act is wrong or what they say is wrong. So for them, sports is that kind of escape to, okay, let me just watch these people do what they're good at for two and a half hours. But the moment that they're kind of forced to confront their demons, on and leisure time then then it's a problem because like i said that's the best people's those two and a half hours when you're able to watch a tv screen a basketball game a football game a hockey game people want to escape the reality and the, the demons that they have to deal with from as work 
their thoughts, whatever case it be. But at the moment that it's kind of put into your face that you can't confront it, you're like, damn, like you have to confront it. And people aren't comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. And and you've identified, I mean, sports are real paradox. It can be the most enlightening, um, freeing activity for people, but historically it's been one of the most oppressive structures in our society. And uh, yes, sport and politics have always mixed. Not only that, it's it's worse than that. Sport has reproduced dominant cultural values right from the beginning, has reproduced the, the position of people in power and they have controlled it. They control what people wear, how they behave, how they participate, what positions that they play and the salaries that they receive and how they participate. So if you can imagine just getting up in the morning and you know what it's like, you're an athlete. And so you get the opportunity to express yourself on the court. You use a, a very talented body. You play the sport that you love, but yet you understand how is historically oppressive that basketball can be. And you still see the racism during the games that you play, um, whether it's from the crowd or from other players or uh, the way the team is structured or where people play and how much they play uh, and how they can be used. Now, we hope that this is not the case to the extreme at universities. We certainly see some extremes in professional sport. There's no doubt about that. Athletes are abused uh, mentally, physically. They destroy their bodies um, and all for what? For profit. And so you've identified the paradox that is sport. It is, it is, can be so oppressive, but it can be so freeing. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because a lot of people are kind of, to be honest, the blunt hypocrites. Like people will say things in one context that as soon as it doesn't, you know, correlate or, or like kind of coincide with what they think, oh, people switch up the topics. Oh, I didn't say this or, or they switch up how they think, but that's the problem. Like people need to keep it consistent. Like, listen, if you feel this way, feel this way, but don't switch it up because all of a sudden it becomes popular. Like for example, like last year with um, Blackout Tuesday on June 2nd, we talked about it last year in the podcast that, or even this year in the podcast that people who either really don't support Black Lives Matter or like don't really know what's about. They just hear the name, posted a black square for what? Like you just posted to be popular. But the moment June 2nd passed by and like all the stuff, the protest died down, we don't hear anything from you again. We don't hear you, we don't see people taking the time to educate themselves. Like, and that's, and I think that's the big problem that a lot of people are doing this or trying to have the conversation because it's now popular. But it took people like you said, Colin Kaepernick, Muhammad Ali, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, all these people before who had the conversation when it wasn't popular. And I think that's what's gonna take societal change, systemic change because a lot of people are now having a conversation because they feel like they're forced to. And I don't want people to think that they're forced to have the conversation. I feel like they wanna have the conversation because they need to have the conversation and they actually wanna learn what they can do to help. And that's kind of how we met the first time. And I really hope that with all these um, institutions that they're actually trying to make real change because they see the flaws that was exposed last year and they actually want to make change, not just because it's popular, people are down the throat, they might lose their job if they don't, like they actually generally want to make change. I really hope that moving forward that, yes, this, not, this conversation is not popular, but people are having it for the right reasons and they're having it to learn, not just because it's popular. So with that being said, we talked about a lot today, which I really appreciate you. First of all, I want to thank you so much for being open, but to sum it all up, We've talked a lot about, you know, how institutional systemic races, you know, athletes using their platforms. From your perspective, and it can be a couple of key factors, what do you think is really going to take to actually make change? Like, give me a couple of things that has to happen to really make the proper change that we need systemically, or even if it's in society with athletes. 
I think that um, in an institution like this, there's a complete lack of understanding of what goes on in an institution based um, from the perspective of someone who walks in and is discriminated against in some way from the get-go. So I think that the first thing that needs to happen in post-secondary institutions is that people need to be educated on what racism is because they don't know and they've never experienced it and how could they know? And so, okay, there we'll, we'll, we'll give you a pass on that, but you better be willing to think about yourself and how you are complicit. How do you reproduce these values and what can you do with us to change those values? And so that means um, we are not just going to bring people into the institution and try to treat everybody equally. There's more to it than that. We need to change the institution and how the institution does business. And that is everything from recruitment to administration to organizing classroom materials, to including all kinds of content from all kinds of different perspectives, um, changing classroom relations, and generating an understanding between people who are willing to work in new structures that change the way we do things. So we're talking about a complete revolution in post-secondary uh, institutions. And it has to begin with educating ourselves and we're supposed to be the most educated people in society. Well, we've got a long way to go. And as educators, I'm excited about being educated. I don't have the answers, but I wanna learn the answers. And, and that is really what gets me going. I want to know how I am complicit and how I take all these things for granted and how I may treat people in a certain way and don't understand that. I need to know how I'm doing that and I need to change it. And I need to do what I can to convince other people to do the same because uh, we need to make this a better place. And I think for me, on my perspective, as someone who is a student who also runs a student group, um, I've said this uh, before that ultimately it's just creating niches that will be three things, educational, like you said, impactful, and resonates with the local community. Like those are the main three things. Like if we can create niches that really highlight those three things, they think we can at least bring to the forefront, like I said, what needs to be changed and hopefully we can get people on board because the more hands on deck, the better. And I'm not talking about just black people, that means everybody, black people, white people, Hispanic people, everybody, it's gonna take everybody changes because yes, this problem, you know, um, you know, directly involves or impacts, you know, marginalized communities, but it's gonna take people like yourselves and, you know, the whole white community to really jump on board and not just like I said, a black committee, you know, doing all the work. Cause at some point it comes to a point where, and I said this before too, that when black people say like, you know, all the stuff's going on, it's like, okay, they're talking about this over and over and over again. But like someone from your perspective, which I really appreciate is talking about this. It's like, oh, like this is what's going on. Like, oh, this is really a problem. Like, oh, okay, tell me more. Like it hits different because it's not the same person who's saying it over and over and over again. It's someone who looks like, you know, the predominant crowd saying the same message that a marginalized group is saying. It's like, okay, like, man, if he's saying it, then this must really be a problem. Like, okay, let's, let's figure out how to help. Let's figure out how to support. Let's actually do things to actually really make a positive impact. Because at the end of the day, like when it's all said and done, like how do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered as someone who, you know, saw the stuff that's going on and would just stand on the style and just watch it go by? Or do you want to take this golden opportunity to actually find out how you can actually help and support and honestly better yourself as a person? Because the beauty of us people like yourself who actually want to learn is that when you learn, you actually find a better way to help the cause. And I've said this before too with the younger generation is that if the younger generation has a better way of doing what we're trying to do right now, do it. But the best thing that we're trying to do is at least try to do the best way that we can 
give them the knowledge of what we know. And hopefully, you know, with all of the evolution of you know society and social media and technology, all this type of stuff, they might have a better way to put out the message more efficiently, more effectively. And that's all we can ask for with the younger generation. How can we help better the younger generation? How can we help set up this current situation better so the next generation of students at the university can thrive and push this thing forward? That's the ultimate goal, like you said, sustainability. Yeah, so I mean, I have to congratulate you on all the work that you've done to date. It's inspired, it's organized, it's passionate, and, and you're doing it to achieve exactly what we've talked about, what we want to do for the university, is to make the university a better place for everybody. Well, I can't thank you more enough for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate it, Kevin, especially being so open. So thank you so much for coming on, by the way. Oh, it's been my pleasure. So now we're going to get to the quick hit excitement. So this is the part of the podcast where I ask Kevin a question, and he has to answer as fast as possible. So, Kevin, are you, are you ready? <laughs> it's not going to be crazy hard, but are you, are you ready? All right. Okay. So first question. So, Kevin, who is your favorite musical artist? Uh, favorite musical artist is Neil Young. Okay. Um, current artist or song you have on repeat right now? Who? You know what? Oddly enough, it's been Wagon Wheel. <laughs> Which song? Wagon Wheel. Okay. Um, all-time favorite album? Uh, um, all-time favorite album, Pink Floyd, The Wall. Okay. Um, since you're a sportsman, who's your favorite athlete? Of all time? Uh, yeah. I have, uh, one is Muhammad Ali. Okay, love it. Number two is Terry Fox. Wow, okay. That's a, that's a first. No one's ever said Terry Fox. Um, what's the last show you binge watched? The Chair. Okay. Netflix show? Netflix show with Sandra Oh, it's about a, an English department. Oh, Sandra Oh, yeah, no, she is. Um, if you could spend a day with someone dead or alive, who would it be? Karl Marx. Okay. So this is a personal one for me. So last year I won this, but I'm interested to see what your answer is. So Kevin, do you like pineapple on your pizza? Yes, I do. Uh, if I'm having a Hawaiian, yes. Uh, okay, so I Coach Lee actually does this, which is crazy. But um, do you do milk before cereal or cereal before milk? Uh, cereal in the bowl, add the milk. Okay, me and Coach Lee do it the other way around. So really, <laughs> yeah, like we actually do the exact same process. Like we put the milk in, we warm it up, and then we put cereal. Like I did not know we do the exact same process. Wow, you ever heard of anybody putting the milk in first? How about that? I know, right? It's crazy. Um, okay, next question. What's a song that you'll never forget the lyrics to? I don't think I have one song that I remember all the lyrics to. Not one. That's a that's a guy with a short attention span. Okay. Uh next question. If you have to stay on a deserted island, what three things are you taking with you? Probably gonna take a book. Okay. Actually, no, I'm probably going to take a journal and a pen instead of that book. Okay. That's two things. Um, and then I'm going to probably need uh, an incredible supply of water, so I'm bringing water, too. Okay. There. Okay. Uh, what's one skill you wish you were good at? One skill. Skill that I wish that I was good at. Uh I wish that I could play a musical instrument. Okay. Which one would you want to play? I think I would pick piano if I if I could. Yeah, me too. Me too. I would have to play cello in a school, but yeah, I would love to play piano. 
You can play cello? Yeah, I, I played from grade five to eight, yeah. Four years ago. Wow, you got to take that up again. Cello's beautiful. I did like playing the cello. I, if The high school I went to, unfortunately, did not have strings, but if I did, I would have taken strings. I did like it. I would have taken strings. Um, next question. So say you're in an alternate universe. So still you, but you weren't doing what you're doing right now. So if you're in an alternate universe, what would you be doing? Yeah, I think I'd be a farmer. Oh, okay. Yep, chilling the land. Okay. Uh, final question. If you wrote a song about your life, which famous artist would you want singing it? Yeah, I think I would take Adele for impact and uh, Bruce for contact for uh, context. Okay. Adele, Adele's got some good focus. Okay. That's all the time that we have. So, Kevin, I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. And the conversation we had was great. So, seriously, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for, for having me. It's been a pleasure. We'll do it again sometime. I hope so. <laughs> and that's a wrap on another edition of the Lakers Locker. I want to thank our president, Kevin Wamsey, for joining us. You find the biggest interview on YouTube and listen to the full interview on all podcast platforms. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you very much. <laughs>